Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and listen, we are pumped to be able to share this episode with you. This is a chat with Robert Breedlove, and before we get into explaining who he is, if you are new to us, I think we would like you to know that we started this whole business called Rockstar Real Estate and started this podcast called the Your Life, Your Term Show in an attempt to help all of us live life on our terms. We look at real estate as a vehicle, not the be all and end all of the best asset class that you could invest in or anything like that. And we thought that real estate would be one way we could front run some of the government monetary policy. And fortunately, that's proven to work out pretty well. The government has continued to print money. The central bank has continued to lower rates and asset prices have responded accordingly. And if you've been smart and bought on the income and not just on the speculative aspect of real estate, it's likely worked out really well for you in the last 10 years. And who knows what the future brings? And we always have to be careful. And when you're playing with real estate, anything can happen. But the bigger message is that we've always really wanted to be about helping people live life on their terms. And last year when we went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, it was really an eye opener for us because we're big gold people. We always thought our savings should be held in gold because you don't want to hold your savings in dollars. They lose value over time because of all the same monetary and government policies. And when we went down that rabbit hole in Bitcoin, it was a real eye opener to us. And we, and we went in pretty hard and, you know, Nick and I acquired a bunch of Bitcoin, I guess, in the spring of 2020. And since then, we've met a lot of great characters. The community in this space has been amazing and it's, it's really meshed well with our whole message of your life, your terms. It seems like that's what Bitcoin's all about. And the more we've learned, the more we've kind of grown in our understanding of it. And it's been fascinating and, and running across different, you know, authors and different people that we've had on this podcast. So to be able to bring Robert Breedlove on here to talk about his thinking about Bitcoin is really special for us just because he's a real deep thinker. I think Greg Faust used, used a word to describe him recently to me that he's a poet. And I really agree with that. He breaks down his analysis using history and takes complex ideas and, and states them rather simply. So in this episode, I really just kind of threw a few ideas at him. I started with a passage that I tried to repeat from the sovereign individual, and I don't think I articulated the, or emphasized the, the sentence properly when it came out, but hopefully you'll get the message of it. And The Sovereign Individual is a book that Robert is writing a series off of. It's, it's a book that's about 20 years old. It's a fascinating read if you haven't read it. It predicts a lot of what's happening right now. I think it was written in the late 1990s, actually. So we kind of start with there, and then I just let him run with his thinking and throw out some of our thinking in between there, but really just wanted to sit back and enjoy some of his thoughts. So this is a podcast not really on you know, making money from Bitcoin or you know, really the economic impact of Bitcoin at a superficial level. It's really just at a deeper level. What's happening here? Why are, why is, you know, why are people looking at something like Bitcoin or, or hard money as, as an answer to maybe the feeling that we all have of what's going on in the world? So really just thrilled to, to share this chat with you. Robert Breedlove on Twitter, he has so much content. Some of his Medium articles are fascinating. And on Twitter, you can get links to all this stuff. His Twitter handle is at breedlove22. So it's at B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E 22. And if you're looking for some, for some content, because you've perhaps never heard of Robert, some of his Medium articles, if you Google up Robert Breedlove and the number zero and Bitcoin, that one really got me. So Robert Breedlove and the number zero and Bitcoin. He has another one called The Masters and Slaves of Money. He has one, an open letter to Ray Dalio. 
He's a co-author of a book called Thank God for Bitcoin. He's doing a wonderful series called the Sailor Series on YouTube, on his YouTube channel with Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy. This is the CEO who took his whole company's balance sheet, basically treasury, and bought $450 million worth of Bitcoin and then proceeded to issue shares and raise $650 million and put that into Bitcoin and has since announced uh, just today, I think that he's purchased more Bitcoin. So this is a tech company going all in and Robert has a great series on YouTube. If you really wanna hear two people go at it um, and really explain some fascinating thoughts around this space, you gotta check out the Sailor series. So Robert Breedlove series with Michael Sailor, the CEO of MicroStrategy on YouTube. You can Google that up. And again, all the links for all of this are off his Twitter handle he links uh, there's a link there with everything kind of you can click on that link and get access to all of these things and that twitter handle again is at breedlove22 and if you are looking for a you know a local community of people trying to live life on their terms you can always learn about what we are doing um, there's a big education component that we're trying to bring so it's not just about real estate you know sometimes we slip in things to the the membership that we're running around personal development and goal setting and really just trying to look at life from a different angle and not just like a money-making angle but if you want to learn about the real estate investments that we're helping Canadians with the assets that they're purchasing the strategies that they're using the cash flow that they're building you can go to the URL rockstarinnercircle.com and on there you'll get YouTube videos you'll get articles you'll get free copies of our book You'll get different reports that we put out. You can come to our monthly introductory class that Nick and I give where we sit around after and answer all your questions. You can register for that. There's a big red button on the website where you can register for that. So everything that we're doing is available to the, to uh, to you there. So if you're looking for a, a local community involved in all this kind of stuff, trying to help each other and... Uh, you know, I know sometimes that might sound crazy, but that's really what we're trying to do. Uh, you can go to rockstarinnercircle.com and find all of that information. That's enough with this intro. Enjoy the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live with Robert Breedlove. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how excited I am. And actually, I just want to thank you in advance for all the content that you put out. We put out a lot of content. I understand how much time it takes to put out that much content. And I don't know how you're doing it. I first stumbled upon you with your, your Medium articles. And I don't know which one really caught my attention. I think it was... The, um, I think it was actually the number zero in Bitcoin, which is mm. one that you highlight sometimes, but I feel, I, I almost feel like I want to give that one more attention. So sometimes I share mm. that one as my first one, but that one just blew my mind. But for, for anyone listening to this, Robert Breedlove has so many great medium articles. And then you have this YouTube series called the sailor series, all about, you know, basically micro strategy and then buying, you know, all the Bitcoin that they've bought recently. And then the series you've put together with, the CEO of MicroStrategy is just incredible. The book, Thank God for Bitcoin, that you have out. Um, yeah. Your open letter to Ray Dalio. Like, I just can't even keep track. Like, everything that you're putting out. So <laughs> thank you from all of us. We're all appreciating this stuff. And and where I wanted to jump in, I wanted to thank skip you. the... Yeah, no, no, it's all good. And and, and really, I think... And thank you for, for having me. I just wanted to say that before we get started. Appreciate you having me on. 
Yeah, yeah, no problem. You you fit exactly. Yeah. I was mentioning before we started recording, you fit so exactly with what we think the purpose of our business is, is just trying to help people live life on their own terms. You know, I felt trapped in the corporate world. I, I almost felt like I was sold a bill of goods, like go to school, go to university, get a good job. Mm. And then my income, yeah. I felt like wasn't getting me ahead. And then we were buying right. rental properties while I was working in tech, which is like, you don't do that. You don't work at like Oracle no. and NetSuite pre-IPO and buy rental properties. But the more right. I looked at these assets, I thought, wait a second, these assets, they're like something's wrong. Like these things are going up in value so much faster than my income. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember thinking, am I playing the game wrong? And that's right. why we quit and started this crazy business called Rockstar Real Estate and this podcast. And ever since then, it's been on a mission, which is why you fit perfectly with our audience. The mission isn't to sell somebody more real estate. The mission is to help people see what's going on and position themselves so they can truly express their lives as, the, as they best see fit. And I think if we all do that individually and uniquely, we all benefit. Like I benefit, mm -hmm. like I feel like you're expressing your life pretty true to yourself. And I benefit mm -hmm. from that because through your yeah. writings, I truly benefit. You make me see things differently. And if you were trapped in something, a job that didn't give you the time to do that, I don't then benefit. So selfishly, I benefit if you right. take care of yourself financially. 100%. And you're, I think you're alluding to the glimmers of a Bitcoinized world, right? Where we, this, the, the thing that few people understand is that the free market is the source of all wealth in the world, right? So all the modern miracles and luxuries we all enjoy, even if you live a middle-class lifestyle, your lifestyle is super luxurious, even compared to the ultra rich hundred years ago, right? So the free market is this generative source of all the wealth in the world and any obstructions we put in the way of free trade are just inhibitive to that wealth creation process. So, Long short is that Bitcoin, by being this money that can't be monopolized, it's actually going to defund a lot of the government artifice in the world. A lot of this overly complexified regulatory, monetary and tax environment such that it actually encourages free trade and makes the world wealthier. And the beautiful thing about that, like it sounds great. It's going to be cool. Everyone's richer. But the beautiful thing is what exactly what you're talking about is it frees people up, frees their time up when your time's not being stolen through currency manipulation and depreciation, you have all this newfound or newly discovered time that you can allocate towards things you find meaningful. And I think that's when people do their best work, not just for themselves. Doesn't just mean like, it looks like you're doing something you love and is meaningful to you. It allows you to put a lot of energy and passion into it, but it's also what the market will resonate with clearly. Like anything that people, any work effort where your heart gut and mind are aligned is clearly going to be better than sitting in a cubicle nine to five, trying to keep up with inflation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. The fact that we all have to play armchair economists to try to survive is, is, is just Crazy. a fool's game. Yeah. Fool's game to me. So I, I wanted to start cause I, I just recently listened to your podcast on uh, what Bitcoin did with Gary Vaynerchuk. And I'm rereading The Sovereign Individual because I read it like, I want to say 2000 or 2001. And I remember putting that book down thinking, oh, wow. Yeah, accidentally. Look, I don't know why I read that book. I put it down and, and I have this memory of putting that book down when I was done thinking, I just read something important. Don't really yeah. know what to do. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't yeah. really know what to do, but I feel like I just read something important. And that's it. I just closed the book, but it just resonated with me. 
And then yeah. now I've been rereading it. I think I'm just on page 130. Um, but page 202, somebody on our team here, I, I gave them the book on page 202. It talks about the evolution of the internet and like the three phases of the internet. And it just talks about yeah. the monetization aspect of the internet. It's just blowing my, it's just blowing my mind. But you had this one passage on that podcast that you, you shared. And I want to I talk about this because a lot of the people we talk to when we introduce them to Bitcoin as a form of hard money they should consider for some savings, they'll often come back to my, Nick and myself, so my brother and myself and say, well, guys, like the government's just going to slam this thing. The government's just mm -hmm, going to mm -hmm, slam mm -hmm. this thing. What are you doing? You, you know, it, it really doesn't make sense or I'm scared or I think it does make sense, but I'm scared, right? Yes. And then you, you yeah. read this, this passage that it's, it's so good. I don't know what page it's on, but I just want to repeat it for everyone. It says, market forces, not political majorities will compel societies to reconfigure themselves in ways that public opinion will neither comprehend nor welcome as they do, as they do the naive view that history is what people wish it to be will, will prove wildly misleading. And that passage kind of makes me think that it's impossible for us to predict what's coming down the pipeline here, but it's probably not what any of us expect. So my question, I guess, to you is, how do you think this evolves over the next five years? Like, what, what do you think happens? Like, I heard, I heard, you know, everyone's thinking about, is, is it this really awful time? Like, is, is it an awful time we go through, but Bitcoin helps us kind of get to the other side? What, what do you think happens to governments, to regulations? How do you think this all evolves over the next few years? I mean, I know you're not gonna have the definitive answer, but you've obviously spent some time thinking about this. Oh yeah, probably, I, I probably butchered uh, the passage. By the way, I probably butchered the passage because I wrote it down so quick. But uh, but no, I know that's that's almost I, I think pretty spot on. Um, if I could try and restate the gist of it, is that we in the modern age we live under this delusion that it is the legislator's pen that drives economic activity in the world, right? We think we pass a law or a regulation and we can somehow reduce the carbon footprint in the world or increase production here or reduce employment here, or increase this interest rate. But again, all of this is artificial construction that the free market, which is this, you know, this term is thrown around a lot, the free market, but it's basically the, inexorable flow of human action. Like people are always going to play the game uh, in a way that favors their interest best, essentially. So even every time you lay down a rule or a law, it doesn't mean it creates the outcome intended. It means it creates a new set of incentives or disincentives for people to work around. Um, one famous example of this is the Cobra effect. So there was some, I forget, maybe it was Kuala Lumpur or another country that they had a, a problem with cobra snake overpopulation. So they passed a law that would, every time a citizen would turn in a dead cobra to the government, they'd be rewarded a small sum of money, right? Sounds great. Sounds like a great direct incentive structure to eliminate the cobra overpopulation. What actually happened? It incentivized people to start breeding cobras, cobras. <laughs> killing them, turning them into the government, uh, and it had this, all these second order consequences on the effect when the Cobras would escape and all this. So it ended up exacerbating the problem long short. So the point is that nature is a complex system. Economics is a complex system. The weather is a complex system. These are things that we 
cannot control. We cannot pull one lever and create the outcome. The arrows of causality get lost in the complexity of the system. So every time humans try to intervene in a complex system, we create a cascade of unintended consequences. And I think that's what we're seeing in the world today is we've tried to over-engineer uh, the financial system. Uh, as Saylor would say, we tried to turn the wilderness into a zoo. And this interrupts the natural evolutionary impulse that keeps natural systems functioning and healthy. And that's why you know, I think we're having so much socioeconomic breakdown in the world. So what happens, what is happening is all of these systems that we take for granted today, we think the government just is sovereign. It is the dominant institution in the world. It, you know, the laws it says go, so to speak. All of the sovereignty or the authority to act in the world as it sees fit, right? It can basically, it has unbridled degrees of freedom in the world. Government can do whatever it wants, so to speak. But all of that sovereignty, it's not like just a God-given thing that we just appeared on earth and there was a government that controlled us all. It's actually derived from the sovereignty of gold, basically. And this is, I've been writing this new piece that I'm, the rough or the tentative title is the Sovereignism series. So I'm going through the book, The Sovereign Individual and kind of breaking it down. But I think at the bottom of this, and I may struggle to articulate this a bit because I'm still forming it in my mind, but I see gold as the one game. You could say money is the one game humans have always been playing. Gold has historically been the ultimate money. So gold is the sovereignty system or the base layer operating system of human action across history. Like every, even, a, even your typical law-abiding citizen crossing the street on the way to work to his cubicle job that doesn't own any gold or know, any, know anything about all this, He's abiding by a legal structure, right? He's waiting to cross the street at a certain time. He's paying his parking tickets. He's operating in a system where the rules and authority of that system are rooted in gold, whether he knows it or not. So even by a second order effect, his action day to day is governed by this base layer sovereignty system of gold. It's crazy to think about. I mean, most like you wear a gold chain, you know a little bit more about gold, but I think most people just think whatever, gold is uh, a shiny monetary rock. Bitcoin, this is why Bitcoin is so hard to get our head around, is that if we consider that, that gold is the one game that's been played throughout all human history and has shaped all the socioeconomic systems we operate within today, Bitcoin is the first competing sovereignty system in the world. It's disrupting this base layer operating system of humanity on a, from a first principle standpoint. And it is just so hard to comprehend because all that, that means everything built on top of it. This would be like, if we're using a computer analogy, um, you know, we're disrupting Linux or something. You're disrupting the base operating system for software and the, the, everything above it changes as a result. And we don't know what shape that takes because all the only game we know as humans is gold, basically. So it's a bit abstract and far reaching, but I think the, the general trajectory this takes, um, as you know, I think the sovereign individual lays it out really well, is that the large centralized state that generates all of its revenues through basically unilateral agreements, meaning that it sets a tax rate that you have no, you have no seat at the negotiation table. 
you just pay the tax or you suffer. Pay <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Or they just inflate the money supply. You have no vote in that. You have no vote in the decision makers that decide. You have no vote in the governors of the Federal Reserve who decide how much they're gonna inflate the money supply. We have no even transparency into the criteria for their decision-making, who's profiting from it, how much money they're gonna produce, when they're gonna produce it. We have no idea. It's just a totally, it's a black box. Um, and this entire system is driven by these revenues of confiscation, basically. And it, it is unaccountable to its own P&L. So every time government bureaucracy does something that doesn't make any sense that the free market would not support, right? They can just run these uh, operations or initi initiatives at a deficit in perpetuity. They can just paper over those losses by printing money, which said differently is they just confiscate more wealth from the productive economy to keep funding these, these loss leading business units or departments or whatever they may be. At some point, so it's a parasitic relationship. You have the, the productive economy is generating wealth through trade and the government uh, is sitting on top of it, extracting wealth through confiscation to survive. At some point, the parasite becomes too large relative to the host organism and it starts to fail. Now, historically, it was really hard for the parasite to fail because it could always just confiscate more wealth. And we actually had a lot of productivity gains in the 20th century, largely through tech, right? Tech is enhance our productivity to, to crazy extent. The digital age is different though, specifically with Bitcoin um, in that as people increasingly suffer under increasingly hostile taxation and inflation regimes, they now have an alternative to go and shelter their wealth in this perfectly scarce, uh, almost entirely immune to confiscation asset we call Bitcoin. So there's this other territory now, this competing sovereignty network that instead of storing your money in physical gold, which is great still, but hard to secure, you know, hard to put a lot of value in, hard to travel with. There's an alternative that's taken the properties of gold that made the monetary properties of gold that made it valuable, merged it with the internet essentially. So you get this global liquidity, ease of security, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, into a competing system that we call Bitcoin. So the thesis is that as governments become more overreaching and more confiscatory, they're actually going to increase the incentives for people to move capital into this network that cannot be um, stolen from in perpetuity. And this devitalizes the fiat system and energizes the Bitcoin network. Also, what does that do? That means the revenue streams of these huge top-down states are completely compromised. It's like you can't inflate Bitcoin, you can't really confiscate it easily. And if you try to tax it, the more you try to increase uh, realized gain taxes, you're just increasing incentives for people to hold. You could try to enforce an unrealized gain tax, but that's not really sustainable either. Um, so the, the incentives of the fiat currency complex are forcing people, not just people, economic actors. So entities, family offices, high net worth individuals, institutions, forcing them into Bitcoin over time. This is crushing the revenues of the state. So what happens? I think the general direction is that only the most productive and accountable components of the government will remain. 
right? Anything that, things that formerly could be papered over. Uh, and the good example of this is, I think it's in Lebanon, Safety and gave this example. There's still, I may be wrong about the country, but bear with me. The Lebanese train authority. Yeah, that's right. I think you have still, it right. Yeah. Yeah, still an active government agent agency. And there hasn't been a track of railroad in Lebanon for 50 years or something, right? That's just one example, uh, which calls to mind that old quote, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government solution. You know, they're able to install these bureaucratic entities and then just steal wealth from pr the productive economy to finance them, no matter what, no matter how, how productive they are. So the, the moral of the story is state revenues will shrink the state business will shrink as a result. Um, one parallel for this, what this looks like is something like the USSR. Um, it actually, when it was competing with America financially, suffered the same kind of fate. Uh, the, the, the more free market capitalism enabled in Western democracies generated more wealth and enabled them to outcompete the, the totally top-down uh, economy of Soviet Russia. So when Soviet Russia bankrupted, essentially, it fragmented into these, you know, 30 some odd states that it had conquered previously. So the thesis of the sovereign individual is that by collapsing state revenues, it's going to shrink the state that will cause it to fragment over time. It's actually returning government to its roots, which government originated as a localized protection service in the agricultural age. So once we could save once we had savings, once we had grain to protect or cattle or arable land, assets that we were cultivating income from, there came a need to protect that, right? We needed to protect it with, with police and military forces. That's what government is. Government is a protection service that really uh, maintains peace for, for the conducive division of labor in a society. So I think the moral of the story is digital age will force governments to compete and return to this free market paradigm uh, by disabling their ability to confiscate wealth perpetually from the productive economy. And, and I can I can totally see that. Like I, I see it too. So I guess then for the, you know, the, the 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 typical person listening to this through that transition, it really just becomes do your own research on this situation. And if Bitcoin makes sense to you, it can act as a way for you to transition and make, protect some of your wealth. It doesn't mean that over the next few years, we don't see some desperate actions by the government. Like I, like I tell my brother all the time, I fully expect in Canada here to wake up one day and the Canadian government announces, likely maybe the US or some other country does it first, but Canada will say, hey, if you have your Bitcoin on a wallet, start, you, know, you have 30 days to move it to an exchange. You have 30 days yep. to move it to an exchange after 30 days, it's illegal, completely illegal, yeah. like illegal in this country. And that I can see happening. And that's going to be an interesting yeah. moment. That's going to be a yeah. very interesting moment because you don't, you don't know this about our family, but our, our, our mother's Scottish, our father's Croatian. I often share this is that my aunt, I was so lucky to hang out with her in Croatia um, when mm. it was still the former Yugoslavia. And mm. the, when the DNR was collapsing there, my aunt 
I was probably like, I can't remember my age, like eight, nine, 10, something like that. 11. She took me to the market and split a, a, a town right on the mm. Adriatic coast. There. I love split. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You've been there. Okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Nick and I have a property right on the coast there. We're so grateful. We go to the, with the family for a month, every summer, except this summer, except this summer, it's been 10 years of taking yeah. the family there, but uh, yeah, we're forever grateful. But uh, she took us to that market. So if you've been to split, there's this little outdoor market there where they sell a bunch of stuff. My aunt worked there. She sold eggs. Oh, wow. Yeah. She worked wow. there and uh, yeah. she would take me there as, as a kid and she would launder uh, German marks because mm. as people were buying eggs, I'll never forget this. I stood next to her while this happened. People would come in and exchange dinars that were collapsing oh. in value for German yeah. marks. Yeah. And I never really thought anything out. Like, I just thought she was this crazy aunt. Like, I knew she was a hustler. Like, I totally knew she was a hustler. <laughs> yeah. She ended up yeah, going yeah, to jail, yeah. by the way. She ended up going to the jail. By, uh, they caught her doing this. She went to jail for two weeks. For real. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For swapping but, but, currency. Yeah, for to swapping survive. currency. To survive. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, to me, that, that memory in my mind, I'm like, oh, my gosh. The black market is the real market. That's like, right. Like, the real economic market is not what the government was saying it was. It That's wasn't right. that like, hey, these dinars are what you should be using. The yeah. real economic market was what the economic players decided it was. That's right. And she risked everything to play in that. And I thought, wow, I wonder what will happen in Canada. You know, when, when that, when, if, if that kind of thing comes down and maybe it won't, like yeah. maybe I'm, I'm, I'm kind of maybe just going to the extreme, but I'm just really, really curious. You might get a text message from or an email from me or say, hey, Robert, you know, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing in this situation? But anyway, I, I kind of think yeah. we're we could be. So I think the the longer period is exactly what you're saying. But over the next yeah. few years, I think we can, by us having this conversation, I think we can better prepare people for to to expect these things from government, and don't be caught mm -hmm. off guard by them. These are the things that are going to happen that we're all going to have to navigate through. And I don't want to say it's normal. That makes it seem like it's a good thing. But I think this is what we'll, we will be facing, these kinds of choices. Yes. Yes. Well, and this is where it gets so brain twisting almost, because when you start to look at government through this sovereign individual lens, you realize that really government is just the biggest mafia in the world. They are, they, it's, it is organized crime, right? What they, you have, at least historically, we needed a monopoly on violence to prevent violence, right? So internally we have the police and legal system to prevent threats to uh, property rights and contract law externally. And we secure the perimeter of that economy with the military, right? So it's using violence to prevent violence. And, um, yeah, it's a it's crazy to think about because that the monopoly on violence always gives into the temptation to monopolize the money, right? Because to control money is what what is the old um, Rothschild's quote? Give me the ability to issue a state's currency, and I care not who makes its makes its laws. To control money is to control populations and human time and energy. Essentially, it's the ultimate claim on human creativity ingenuity energy and it just seems as though that it is it's just a it's people think it's like oh the government protects you from crime to go against the government is crime but there's a whole nother perspective to it it's almost like when you look at the cube and it looks looks like this way in one perspective and this way in another it just it is organized crime 
And it may have been, again, necessary in the 20th century, but I think the great promise of the digital age is that we can now do these, we can provide these services that government was formerly necessary for, like executing contracts, securing private property with software, right? And you do it at orders of magnitude more cheaply and, and efficiently than, than you need, um, than was necessary in this, this monopoly on violence. There's actually a great piece written by Hasu. Let me see if I can find it real quick. That, because then maybe this but he's becomes... just making the point that no go ahead i was just gonna say maybe maybe it becomes a, a a beautiful transition like maybe it becomes just where the government is starved of its revenues has to adjust and this is a beautiful transition to it and some of the worst case scenarios that we can all possibly envision maybe they don't come to fruition or maybe they, you know, maybe some things bother, but, but maybe, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. Like maybe it's like, well, no, the beast is starved and there's this beautiful transition over to the other side. And yeah, uh, I, I no, think you're on I'm too optimistic. Right well, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. But if we just look at historically transitions are chaotic and or bloody. And I would say a starved beast will take desperate action. Um, you know, the argument in the sovereign individual book is that, uh, which I'm calling them in my piece. I'm so we had capitalists and communists and socialists and I've read, a, I've read, I've been fortunate enough to read a rough draft of your first piece and it is excellent. Yeah. You are going to blow people away with this. Like it's awesome. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I'm super pumped. I'm what I'm calling the, this new digital citizen of the 21st century are sovereignist, right? So they stand in contradistinction to all these other, um, state ideologies. And they are empowered by this option, this, this incredible level of optionality where if you don't like the way a state is treating you, you can essentially, you have capital flight to a degree never before seen. Like for instance, your, it was your aunt in Croatia. <laughs> yeah. She was stuck in that system and she had to go into the black market and swap small amounts of currency just to make ends meet. But in a Bitcoin world, she can now take her entire nest egg, move it into Bitcoin, and then you're you're done. You're out of the system. You can move anywhere in the world, anywhere with access to internet or open source software. You can restore balances, move funds. Um, so the example here that this of optionality keeping people honest. I love the example Michael Saylor gave, actually. He said that in, in Miami Beach, it's very common for people to be armed. And therefore everyone's really polite because there's a symmetry of violence, right? Everyone could be packing, even the nice old lady. And you're just gonna by default, your, your, your default behavior towards people is just gonna be politeness because you don't know, you know what, what could happen. Now you could contrast this to something where people are disarmed and there's a few armed guards. They're gonna typically be a little less polite because they don't care what they have no, there's no incentive for them to be to care about the opinion of the unarmed uh, citizens. So this uh, transition, I think, you know, the point the sovereign individual makes is that governments, not only will these sovereignists have sort of the power of government almost, even an individual could have, in, the in theory, command the power that a government was associated with in the 20th century. And for an example of this, look at early Bitcoiners. 
guys that have you know anonymously mined a hundred thousand Bitcoin, they have a lot of means, and who they don't we don't know who they are necessarily. So they are kind of the the initial the first sovereignist of this new age. Now, this gives them a couple of things. This gives them a, 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 an incredible means of negotiation and leverage with a nation state because they're very wealthy, very independent. They can move anywhere in the world. Nation states or jurisdictions would want them to come into their jurisdiction and spend and produce and start businesses, et cetera. But it also um, makes them, should, should say, they be identified as a large Bitcoin holder. And this also may make them a target for government extortion. So a government could, governments that traditionally only deal with other governments in this way, since people are now as powerful, can be as powerful as governments in the 21st century, governments may start to treat individuals like they used to treat only governments in the 20th century, if that makes sense. So the symmetry of resources and optionality and violence being leveled actually means that institutions and individuals will compete on a more level playing field. So I think the long run outcome of that is great. It's a more peaceful, stable society, but the short run transition is potentially really unpredictable and disruptive. Um, yeah. You know, violent on a localized level. So the, the, the great promise here is that we shrink global violence because we're defunding uh, perpetual global war that the nation state is carrying out, but you're also reducing those protection services that they provide. So you're sort of uh, incentivizing more localized and randomized violence in the transition. So it's a very hectic thing to think about. Yeah, and yeah, agreed. And I think that's where everyone's stuck on it. And the only thing I think that comes back to me when 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 I I talk to people about this is that the response is, well, Tom, it'll be a coordinated thing where you, there's no, there's no going to game theory this thing out because it'll be like, you know, they'll just shut down the internet and this is going to be universally closed and you're not going to be able to move around. So if the U S or Canada or the UK does something, you're not going to be able to move your Bitcoin around because it's going to be shut down everywhere. And I just think, right. I, I, I just, I can't, I mean, that's extreme. I, I just think that that won't happen, but I have no real argument to back that up. It's just my belief of human nature that something else happens instead of that. Yeah. But that's well, a couple a of things. Th th so this is interesting today that, that may or may not be relevant. So Craig Wright, have you heard of this guy? He's the, the fake. I don't think so. He's oh, an yeah. imposter. Yeah, that's I think I have someone himself. just emailed. Yeah, I have heard of this guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't even want to energize his name or reputation, but just for example's sake, he is an imposter that's pretending to be Satoshi Nakamoto. He's literally, it's sad to watch him. He goes around the world and gives talks and says he's Satoshi and he just is obviously lying. It's very painful to watch. Um, anyways, he recently, very recently, I think this week was suing companies that had posted the Bitcoin white paper on their website. I so hadn't sending, heard this. No, I hadn't heard this. Sending oh lawsuits yeah. saying, take down the Bitcoin white paper. It's my IP, whatever, whatever. How did the free market respond to this? MicroStrategy, NYDIG, tons of other Bitcoin companies and institutions all posted the Bitcoin white paper to the website in like blatant defiance to this guy. 
So the point is when you try and yeah, got in the it. digital age, you try to clamp down or censor something or control data, you try to squeeze it, it squeezes out from between your fingers in every direction. Yeah, and yeah. You and didn't up, you didn't you use it? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, that's it. It just creates, it's like the the Talebian hydra. You know, you cut off one head and a hundred more spring up. So, didn't you so use information an example? and the internet is anti-fragile to this type of censorship. I think you used a great example in history. I think it was one of your things I was listening to where you talked about during feudalism hundreds of years ago, was it like the printing press? I can't remember. I can't remember if That's it was right. you talking That's about right. this. Yeah, when the church yeah. tried to like control yes. some of the distribution of knowledge, the yes. printing press, there was more books created during that era, not less. Is that yes. That's another so example the, of the, that. This is another great comparison to the transition we're going into. So the dominant institution today is the central bank. Uh, you, could, you could say the nation state central bank, they're sort of one and the same sure. at this point. The church was the dominant institution uh, at the end of the feudal age 500 years ago. In the last decade of the 1500s, there were 10 million books produced. So this was right after the invention of the Gutenberg printing press. Uh, the mass production of books was possible for the first time. 10 million books produced in a decade. That equaled roughly the same amount of books that were produced in all the hundreds of years prior to that. So say the 500 years leading up to that, they, we had produced roughly 10 million books as well, 10 million books that had survived. So the supply of books, right, for 490 years-ish, hits 10 million, and then 10 years later, it's 20 million. So the number, the, the cost of access to information plummets. Uh, this, this threatens the church's monopoly on knowledge because they control the scriptorium, they control the issuance of books, therefore they control thought um, it was, that's why it was a powerful institution, you know, with this explosion of knowledge and, a, and a, the commensurate plummeting of cost to access came a lot more uh, thinkers, a variety of thinkers, people asking more questions. The church wised up to this and said, oh, shit, we need to stop this tool. It's disrupting our monopoly, right? It's breaking our, our stranglehold on the world. They tried to clamp down on the printing press. And same effect, it, this had the consequence of driving its proliferation. So you try to, to censor, uh, you know, the use of the printing press in the largest uh, soci socioeconomic hubs first, right? Cities, towns, whatever, wherever the big stick can whack easiest. And what does it do? It's, it shoots it out into all these little nooks and crannies everywhere else and reinforces the value proposition of the printing press. People say, oh shit, the church is trying to shut this thing down. All of a sudden books go very black market and they disperse much more quickly. And then as this knowledge flows, you know, it's just, again, just data, it's fueling this heretical uprising against the church. So their efforts to censor the, disrupt the disruptive technology that was threatening them actually accelerated their own demise. And the, the parallel would be in, in the sovereign individual thesis, encryption technology being disruptive to the nation state. And as the nation state tries to clamp down on encryption technology, they're actually gonna drive demand for encryption technology and see that it's put to its highest and most subversive use. A, a simple recent example of that was Trump being banned off social media, right? Which, whatever, I don't care. Like I actually support any private company that wants to ban or restrict service to any individual. That's fine, that's free market capitalism. I don't care. But what was the consequence of this? 25 million people signing up for Telegram a week later.
right? Censorship driving demand for encrypted messaging. So every time we see a centralized body mute or try to censor or stamp out an, in, an individual, you're gonna drive demand, more demand for encrypted tech. So it's, it's something that no institution can stop. And it, it's, it's almost like, I guess you could sum it all up in that information finds a way. You know, you can't put a, you can't kill an idea. You can't shoot an idea. You can't put an idea in a box. You can't cage it. You can't restrict it. And in the digital age, ideas have just hit hyperdrive. You know, they're everywhere. And now ideas and capital are the same thing. If you have the idea of your private seed in your mind, your private key in your mind, you can have a billion dollars between the years and roam the world freely. So we're in this radical new age where the, the anachronistic institutions of the industrial area just don't hold the same sway as, as they did in the 20th century. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. And what comes to mind, a current example of that comes to mind is Linux. I, like, I remember being at Oracle, I was telling Greg Foss this, I, mentioned, I, I remember being at Oracle when Linux came out and everyone dismissed it. Everyone dismissed mm -hmm. it. It was like Sun right. Microsystems is going to be like the big bad company that prov provides right. the Unix servers. And Linux, it was like Linux. And then, you know, Red Hat started putting services around it and it started to become something yeah. and, and, and it just kind of took off. And I'm pretty sure a few years later, maybe many years later, but Oracle bought Sun Microsystems because yeah. Sun Microsystems really couldn't compete. I'm summarizing here, but couldn't compete against yeah. Linux. And uh, I see the same thing happening. It's, it's kind of, you see this thing over and over. So I agree completely. And I think that's why the transition does happen. I, I have another question for you and I wanna make sure we get this in because I really want your thoughts on this is, and this is maybe in a different angle now. If we go to an economy that's not based on credit or debt and we go to an economy that's based on you know real money, hard money, what happens when there's a crisis of some sort? Because mm -hmm. this is something that comes up in conversations I have with friends. Is, yeah. is what happens when there's a crisis of some sort and the, and the, the local, let's call it the local smaller government just to make us both happy. <laughs> the local smaller <laughs> government doesn't have, you know, the resources to, they can't print the money anymore. So that, you know, the new road, the new bridge to repair the hospital, whatever it is, the social services mm -hmm. of that local area that need it, they can't just print the money to create it. My, mm -hmm. well, I, I just want to hear your answer actually. Yeah. Well, how, yeah. Would, how do you address that? Yeah, so I'd like to touch on actually your last point about uh, Linux, right? And why this is sort of akin to when the internet started to be commercialized and go mainstream, there was actually most corporate entities, big shots thought intranets would be the thing. I forgot. Right? I totally forgot about the intranet. I totally yeah. forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you only needed, forget the internet. Yeah, that's yeah. This you just need weird, your local network. It's your internet. This, I forgot. Yeah, right? this weird space for porn or yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Intra corporate intranet will be the thing where we facilitate business and we control all <laughs> the ins and outs. And what, what happened? The open internet totally devoured intranets. And there's no such thing as an intranet today, right? So there's a fundamental concept here in that open systems always outcompete closed systems and the reason is and this is a, a this is a mathematical reason um the genetic epistemologist jean piaget talked about this he called an open system an equilibriated structure 
and a closed system a disequilibrated structure. An equilibrated structure is one in which the rules are voluntarily adopted by participants. So voluntarily adopted and negotiated. A closed system is one in which the rules are imposed, right, under threat of penalty. The equilibrated system necessarily outcompetes the disequilibrated system over time because this system, the disequilibrated one that requires enforcement of rules and protection of turf, incurs those costs. It incurs costs associated with the enforcement of the rules and the protection of the turf that the equilibrated system does not. Therefore, the equilibrated system generates more wealth. You could say the free market is equilibrated, a monopoly is uh, disequilibrated. And that's why the open systems, open source systems with a voluntary exchange, people, again, well, you cannot stop the flow of human nature. People will always gravitate to the games that most favor their interests. People will always play the game with the most equitable rules, right? They, given the option. So the only reason something like fiat currency has survived up until this point is because people had no other option. And now there is we have this game emerging called Bitcoin that's just totally fair, just uh, transparent, etc. So you can't stop this flow. I, I guess the, 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 the punchline there would be open systems and open source systems, what I'm calling digital organizations in this, um, this new piece, they devour analog closed source organizations. It's inevitable. It's mathematically impossible. It's, it's, it's an exchange of entropy almost like it, it's rooted in physics and math and uh, really hard to stop. So I just want to put a button on that. Uh, Cause I think, yeah, it's which makes it, way. which makes it inevitable to me. Like, that's why I feel like what we're staring at is inevitable. You know, I, I just feel like this is happening. And, and, and I know sometimes I don't speak to it as eloquently as you do. Um, and which is why I think you do a great service, by the way because the way you Thank articulate you some of these messages really is important. But to me, I'm just like, huh, this is done. Like I've, I've already decided, yeah. like in my mind, I'm yeah. like, yeah, this yeah. is happening. And I yeah. don't know that how the transition's gonna look. It's something, yeah. you know, Jeff Booth talks about a little bit like, like Bitcoin's this like life raft. I don't know if he he started, yes. you know, or, or you said some, I, I think it was, I heard yeah. it from Jeff Booth first when, when he was on, but, but I'm like, yeah, it's kind of like, there's this thing out there you can kind of grab onto to get through this transition. Right. This is happening. And uh, that's how uh, I feel. I, I just feel like even the transition, what, you know, I remember when I went to work at NetSuite, everyone said, no one's going to trust their accounting software in the cloud. Like that's what we were right. told. Nobody right, right, right. is going to trust. Yes. This is the yeah. lifeblood yeah. of a company, the accounting. Yes. They're not going to put it Tom, yes. in the internet. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? Yes. And I remember thinking at that point, I'm like, I don't know, you do your banking online already. Like, I think That's it's right. going to happen. Like, I really think this is going to yeah. happen. Why are you going to install yeah. these servers and update them? Like, it's a disaster. Right. Yes. And, uh, and then it just happened. Like, it was like this transition happened. And it, and it, was, totally, it was fast. It was just over. Yeah. It was over. Then yeah. Salesforce.com, yeah. NetSuite. Like, it was like yeah. all the big ERP CRM companies in Silicon Valley had to, like, go from the client server yeah. model to immediately the internet model. Right. And it was just like, you know, there's a period of five years there and that might sound long to some people, but it was like five years yeah. before nobody would touch it. Five years later, NetSuite's going public on the New York stock exchange for a billion dollars. Boom. Right. Yes. Right? And, and even though the, the closed source systems like the NetSuites or the QuickBooks online, because QuickBooks had to make a big transition too, that they, they navigated successfully. They actually had to adapt themselves to these open source communities as well. Like they have their little app stores, you know, because they create a software 
but they can't possibly navigate all the use cases and permutations necessary that users, users demand of that software. So they actually create these open APIs, right? Which increases the utility of their core software. So it's, you can't stop this. It's, and the, the, the analogy I use in the piece is that this is, you can dam a river, it can last for a long time, but that dam is gonna break eventually. Like mother nature always restores balance in the end. And I think that the, just like water flows to the lowest places, human nature will always flow to the most equitable rule set. And that's why open source systems always outcompete. It's just a matter of energy expenditure. Um, and it, so I wanna to, get your question. Yeah, the other question the just second about- second question, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the important thing to realize here, and I, again, this is, we operate on this fiat paradigm. We're so deeply entrenched in that we, we don't even realize it. You know, we think in dollars, for instance. So there's a, we're very deeply connected to the monetary system. Even if we don't think we are, we stand outside of it, or, you know, even Bitcoiners, we sit outside of, I still think in dollars. I've been thinking about what is money and all the philosophical aspects of it for years and writing about it. I still think in dollars. Okay, I can't, I also think in sats, but I, it's hard to disentangle that, right? In a world where there is no lender of last resort, there is no printing press, there is no you know, social safety net provided by the nation state, in the event of something like a COVID-19 catastrophe, uh, the general theme here, by the way, is you lose the, the nanny nation state, you're gonna be forced to be more self-responsible. This is, we talked earlier about defense and security, right? You're going to have less police and military. So therefore you have to kind of be more concerned about your own protection in this transition. But you would also need to be concerned about your own economic protection and position. So historically, when gold was money, there was an incentive to accumulate savings because money appreciated every year. You could think of hard money as a non-counterparty index fund investment on all global equities. So long as this money supply remains relatively scarce to an increasing abundance of goods, goods and services in the world, then this money holds claim over more and more goods and services every year. So you're basically, uh, you have a non-counterparty position in the collective productivity of the, the economy, right? When you flip that and you monopolize money and you start inflating the supply year over year, and make it force us into this debt-based economy, then people have little to no incentive to hold cash. So we're always living at the margin. We're incentivized to take on leverage, lever up because, because inflation erodes real debt burdens over time. So everyone, again, this deeply integrated financial system is it's changing your incentives and changing your perception on the world and forcing you to be more debt focused. That's why we all have credit cards. That's why we all have mortgages on our homes. That's why we use uh, leverage trading options and all these That's other why things. why we lease cars instead of buying cars. Why we like... lease cars. It, it shortens your time horizon, raises your time preference, as the Austrians would say. And all of this has the perverse effect of fragilizing us individually and systemically. So when there is an economic shock, uh, a levered system has no buffer, right? It forces liquidations and collateral calls and all of the, it just, it, it eats itself really quickly. Um, and I, a good way to think about this, 
is that there's an economic reality to debt and saving. You can't fake it. You can't, you know, people think print more money. It's not actually printing more money. You're actually confiscating wealth from some and giving to others. So there's no creation of new wealth by printing money. Saving is enduring current sacrifice for later enjoyment. Debt is current enjoyment at the cost of later sacrifice. When we make the entire monetary system debt-based, we are uh, in exacerbating our exposure to that later sacrifice. We're pulling all the enjoyment into the present and being like, let the later generations worry about it. That creates a fragile financial system. Which so has been a fun like, ride, like which is the 80s, the 90s, you know, it has put, it oh, is yeah. why the prosperity has been there. And, you know, I was born in 73. So I lived mm -hmm. through this era that kind of benefited from pulling all that forward through debt. So I get it. Like it's been a great but ride, it, it's but it's not pulling, a sustainable thing. Here's the thing. It can pull forward productivity or wealth creation for very short spurts. But I would argue that most of the prosperity we've enjoyed in the U.S. since going off the gold standard is not that we pulled it forward necessarily. We do to some extent, but it's mostly because we've externalized the inflation onto the world. So we've been sending dollars to countries. They've been sending us goods and services. And as a result, we've this is not just a, a positive for the U.S., this, this infamous exorbitant privilege. We've gutted our industrial base, right? We've eviscerated the middle class. We're no longer really a productive economy. We're a financialized economy. We depend on the productive, productive factory of the world, largely China, to give us our stuff. And we send them dollars uh, and treasury debt. To bring this all back to answer the question, COVID collapse happens. No one has any savings because they're not incentivized to do so. In fact, they have a ton of debt. So there's a lot, there's huge service costs. When you have to turn off your business or you lose your job or your income, uh, goes away, all of a sudden you're exposed to the consequences of that debt and you don't really have any buffer against uncertainty that money saved is intended to provide. In a hard money world, the opposite would be the case. You would be incentivized to hold money over time, to accumulate savings, and this would give you a robustness to economic shocks. So when COVID does strike and it, by the way, we're still assuming in all of this that there is a, a, a nation state imposed lockdown, which is actually driving all of the economic harm. The virus isn't causing much harm at all, actually. The data bears this out. Sorry if you've lost a loved one or been sick with it. I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay that it's a problem, but the economic damage caused by the virus is the government response, not the virus. That, that is inarguable. Assuming that in this hard money world, Bitcoin world, we'd still have this top-down government response. Individual economic actors would have savings as a buffer against this, this shock, and they could ride out the storm, so to speak. Um, but the, the, the larger point to that would be in a Bitcoinized world where people are incentivized to have savings, there would also be lesser to no top-down government response to a COVID crisis that's caused the economic calamity in the first place. Uh, and finally, let us not forget the reason COVID is a global pandemic is because of the state response. When this initially emerged in Wuhan, China was suppressing the story and they still let flights come in and out of Wuhan. So they, they actually, the state suppressing the, the story of COVID gave it its incubation period. That's why it, it developed into a global situation. Why I think if you had a free market response, 
you know, self-organization would have dealt with it much better than, than a top-down uh, mode of organization. And so then to, so to pick up on that from a, from a savings, and I, I, I want to honor your time here, so I'm going to go quick, but, but if, if we use a hard money Bitcoin approach, there's a transition period where governments are going to have to start to save, which, and people are going to have to start to yes. save which is good. That transition might be difficult because you can't print all the money. So you have to save, right. but not only it gets better in, in my mind, hearing you think about it, because if, if a government saves local government, you know, whatever we're going to, whatever we're going to decide, it does it. Um, mm -hmm. If the government saves, they're going to earn interest on their savings. So yes. if you get to a point where you have some savings, because in my mind, I'm always losing money. Like Nick and I are always talking like, mm, if you got some cash in the bank, what are we doing with the cash in the bank? Because we're so trained yeah. that the value of a money goes down or dollars yes. goes down, yeah. assets go up. So you're always like, I got to get into assets. I got to get into assets. But yeah. if we live in a world where your money goes up in value or you live in, in hard money, that goes up in value your savings gets more and more and more and it can compound. Yes. So as opposed to yes. losing value, like if the government yes. could save $100,000 and now let's call 5% interest instead of inflation, interest on the yes. savings. Now 100,000 at, at uh, I don't know what five is, you know, over 10 years, but 100,000 over 10 years, I think is like 250 grand. That's what would come out at yep. the end of the 10 years. Yep. So now, uh, now I'm 250 grand. So yeah. not, not only not only do I have money to spend on new hospitals that we need or, or whatever we need, I haven't lost my base. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's just a it, it's a better way to run things. It's the transition from here to there that we've been talking about right. for the last 100%. hour. How do we get there? But it's almost like a beautiful thing. It's beautiful. And you're touching on the key point here. Why another reason why Bitcoin wins is we think it's common knowledge, right? I don't know if they said this where you were growing up, but I was taught growing up. It's like a dollar today is worth less than a dollar tomorrow. That's just like conventional wisdom. Everyone understands. Yeah, don't you get it? Into, yeah. You don't question it. It just is. A sat today is worth, oh, I'm sorry, a, sat, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. A sat today is worth less than a, than a sat tomorrow. That's what's yeah, that's like, flipped here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's the and mind this, blowing. This and this 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 recursive feedback dynamic you're describing, whereas all of a sudden you have savings, savings underpins investment, ergo savings generates yield, right? Yield accretes, so you're growing the productive base of the economy. The opposite is true in debt base, right? You're 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 the borrower is the slave to the creditor, right? So you're, you're actually losing value over time. And this just, it unravels society. But it just, I don't know. Like I thought that after reading The Creature from Jekyll Island and some other writings, I really thought this whole central banking scheme was a big, you know, cabal or conspiracy. But after talking with Sailor and just, I don't know, digging more into history and realizing how dumb people have been throughout history. You know, Sailor gives a great example that they bled George Washington to death. Like we thought that was the right medical procedure for one of the most important men in the world was to just keep bleeding him. And that's why he died. So, so it's a rational, act, rational actors acting well, it, rationally it, it, in a broken system. Back to this, where we try to over-engineer uh, 
society, right? We're trying to turn wilderness into a zoo. Maybe we, it was, we were trying to just paper over the business cycle and price instability, these natural fluctuations of the market process. We're trying to you know, engineer it and control it and grab it. That back to the, how we started this conversation, we just created these unintended consequences where now the whole world is critically dependent on debt and more leverage to remain sustainable. And all this is doing is increasing the inflation rate, which acts as a hurdle rate for all businesses and economic actors and forcing people further out along the risk curve, right? You have to do more and more risky things. If you're a company, you gotta make an acquisition or go into new markets. If you're an individual, uh, you just have to do anything to, to outpace inflation. And the beautiful outcome of all this is that now all of a sudden at the very end of that risk curve has emerged the ultimate risk off asset being treated as the ultimate risk on asset today but as it accretes more monetary value, it sinks down that Exeter pyramid of, of liquidity and trust minimization and becomes something uh, more foundational than gold. You know, it, it's, it's radical to see this system. It's almost like this entire system we've built is a, is a complex of unintended, unintended consequences. And Bitcoin is like an immune response by the collective economy. Like we need it. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Bitcoin it's almost like it's to here to true up the system. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Showing exactly. up at like the perfect time, you know? 100%. So thank Robert. Uh, please keep doing everything you do. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I read your writing and, 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 you know, you're having a big impact and all of us up here in Canada, actually, Greg told me you have to move up to Canada, by the way. I just want to put that on the record. <laughs> he said, tell Robert he's got to move up to Canada. Uh, um, but thank you for everything that you're doing. Um, I just want to give out your Twitter handle or because uh, I think that's the best thing to give out for you. So if you're new to yeah. Robert Breedlove, yeah, on his Twitter handle, which by the way, which is really cool because you have a freedom maximalist, like you have the stuff that you put on your Twitter handle is very telling of who you are as a person, right? Because you're putting thank this you. stuff right out there. Um, it's at Breedlove22. So at Breedlove22. You're the CEO and founder of Parallax Digital. And I just think you're having a huge impact on a lot of us. And I think our audience is really going to appreciate this. At some point in the future, I'll probably bug you to do it again. And the reason I'm saying this as we're recording, I want that on the record that I'm going to bug you to do, uh, to do this again. So thank you. I know you're busy. And, uh, you know, just I, I want to thank you. We're, as a thank you to this, by the way, we have t-shirts that say your life, your terms on them. These, this okay. is $8 value. This is eight dollars. Oh. I'm talking Ooh, Canadian right. dollars. So like, we're not even talking sats wow. here. This is yeah, yeah. this is a, so I'm gonna follow. I'm gonna follow up for, for a mailing address and send you one of okay. our these. T this is a, this is a this is a legendary T-shirt you're getting. So just uh, I, I love get it. Ready. I love get the ready. message. Yeah. And I think the ethos of Bitcoin fits that perfectly. I mean, that's what yeah. it's all about: is living life on your terms. Yeah. So. Yeah, Robert. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. Hey, we'll talk thank soon. You. Yeah, yeah. See ya. See ya. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank All you. Right. Thank you. Hey, everyone. So hopefully you enjoyed that. If you want more information from Robert, you can check him out on Twitter at Breedlove22. If you want some information about what we're doing here at Rockstar, you can go to www.rockstarinnercircle.com. That's rockstarinnercircle.com share some feedback with us, share this episode. If you enjoy this kind of stuff, let us know, please. It really helps us and gives us kind of the energy and fuel to keep going. That's it for now. Until next time, your life, your terms.